lit up. How are you? How are your cans? Uh, my cans are good. You Just lost my roll call. Lost his roll call. Nicely deleted. Well, there be careful because it it's, it's coming up at the top of the show. <laughs> just a minute. Should we just do the roll call right off? Like literally, we don't even intro the show. You just go straight into it. No, no. Let's, let's do let's the not show. Let's not even say who we are. Let's do the show. All right, fine. Who? What is this show? What are we doing? I don't even know. Sid Mead, right? Sid Mead. All right. You didn't. You, oh God. <laughs> no, I saw the movie. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm dying to hear what you thought of 2010. Oh, that, that's a good movie. Boy. You ready? Yeah. This is Death Watch, the monthly podcast where we eulogize one of the greats who has recently passed by watching some of their work that we weren't previously familiar with. My name is Matt Brown, and I am Matthew Price. And we're recording this episode on January 22nd, a day which, by the way, death is having a field day today. We will get to that in roll call. Um, it will be in your feeds on January 31st, and hopefully like 15 more people won't have died. But Well, there will, but, you know, notables that would have <laughs> made roll call. <laughs> Any would, 15 people? Yeah, I, I know, feel like it's, it's a safe it's, bet. Yeah, it's going to happen. 15 that we, that we know Absolutely. very well? Absolutely. Maybe not as safe. Um, so... To that end, today we will be discussing the work of industrial designer-turned-futurist Sid Mead, uh, who more than just a handful of designers in the 20th century helped to create what we, I think we would generally refer to as the look of the future. Is that about, <laughs> about accurate? I would say that in the area specifically of our potential future off this planet, yep. I would say there's nobody more influential than Sid Mead. Yeah. Uh, so he did his groundbreaking work primarily on uh, on Blade Runner, but you can also look at Tron, Alien, Star Trek, the motion picture, and even Star Wars, given that reputedly the Adat Walker, uh, which Joe Johnston ended up fully designing, was based on an idea by, by Sid Mead that George Lucas liked. So he's kind of had a uh, seismic impact on pretty much every science fiction movie made since 1975, because obviously, like, basically since those movies started coming out, everyone that followed... Yeah, basically everything except 2001. Yeah, but funny story. <laughs> uh, okay, because I watched Peter Hyam's 1984 film, 2010, the year we right made on. contact uh, for today's show. Uh, just in time, by the way, 2010. It's now 2020. Yeah, it's, it was you nice like to get in there. I like while know. the decade yeah. is still. Sorry, we won't get into yeah, that no, discussion it's again. It. It's not worth not it. Not worth it. And you watched uh, Brian De Palma's Mission to Mars? Is that right? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I once discussed that show on a different podcast yes. with our friend Kurt Halfyard. Uh, this podcast the is show. called uh, Get Your Cast to Mars. Honestly, don't know if that sucker's in iTunes or not. It might just be at row3.com. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, before we do any of that, mm -hmm. we're going to do Roll Call. Roll Call. Oh, this is kind of a big one, and I uh, and that is only because uh, we... We recorded. We were recording this episode a bit late, and I feel like we recorded December's episode a bit early. Yep. So quite a bit. It feels like six or seven weeks since we did mm -hmm. this. So yeah. 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 And also, I mean, it's January. It's winter, and death is a, a punishing on mistress. the march. Yeah. 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 She's doing her thing. Everyone on this list died of exposure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to being alive. No. Uh, okay. So yeah, we'll start it's exposure to air. To air. Yeah. Yeah. That's what everyone dies of is exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's kick this off. So here are the people that, uh, that have passed away between when we last recorded our show and now that, uh, are notable, not necessarily people that we have done a show about. Exactly. All right. That'll do. Have I sufficiently explained? I think you've covered it. All right. Yeah. Uh, first up, James Radio Kennedy, the subject of the movie Radio, a, uh, mentally challenged adult who, uh who um, was the subject of an article in Sports Illustrated called someone, uh, the title of the article was Someone to Lean On. The article and the movie are based on the true story of uh, T.L. Hannah High School football coach Harold Jones, who was played by Ed Harris in the movie, uh, and a mentally challenged young man, James uh, Robert Radio Kennedy, who was played by Cuba Gooding Jr., mm -hmm. and is famously the subject of the uh, joke in Tropic Thunder, Never Go Full Retard. Uh <laughs> Right. So, right? This is the movie they're talking about mm -hmm. when they say, if you do that, it will ruin your career. Hmm. Uh, Tom Adams, who was a uh, U.S.-born Anglo-Scots uh, illustrator and painter. Uh, he was active in a variety of visual formats, but he's, uh, he's primarily known for his work in book cover art, uh, mostly because he designed book covers for the paperback editions of almost every Agatha Christie novel. Neat. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, he also worked uh, on uh, the John Fowles novels, The Collector, The Magus, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. Um, but his Agatha Christie covers are considered iconic. Um, he he did, you know, there are, I'm going to say there are hundreds of Agatha Christie novels. So, yeah. Um, uh, he basically ended up doing covers for all of her paperbacks, sometimes more than once. Uh, Gershon Kingsley, uh, an early convert to the Moog synthesizer and the composer of the instrumental song Popcorn. What's Popcorn? Oh, that song. That son of a bitch. What a piece of shit, that guy. Thank God he's gone. Yeah, he he died. But, you know, I love that song. Sure. Yeah. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Lewis Norris, also known as the... Wait, both of these men are dead? No, but Lawrence Bittaker died. Uh, on December 13th. Uh-huh. Roy Lewis uh, is not dead yet, uh, but the two of them together were mm-hmm. known as the Toolbox Killers. Okay. American serial killers and rapists who kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls in Southern California over a period of five months in 1979. Geesh. Yeah. Um, dis- he was described by an FBI special agent as the most disturbing in- individual for whom anyone has ever created a criminal profile. Um, he was sentenced to death, but he died of natural causes uh, in San Quentin. Um, they're known as the toolbox killers due to the fact that the majority of instruments used to torture and murder their victims were like pliers and ice picks and sledgehammers, items that were normally in a toolbox. Great. Yeah. Uh, Herman Ike Boone, who was an American high school football coach uh, and was the coach who was the basis of the movie Remember the Titans. Whoa. Yeah. I often ask myself if I personally remember the Titans. And the honest answer is that I don't often even remember that there was a movie of that. Uh, yeah. I like that movie. It's good. Denzel Washington. It's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is just like more like a story. I'm not a famous person, but I was struck by this. Uh, not as much as the woman who was killed. but So a six-year-old woman was struck and killed by falling debris. Sorry, a six-year-old woman? 60-year-old, 60-year-old woman, woman. Okay. was struck and killed by falling debris in a midtown Manhattan street. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman was identified later as Erica Tishman. Tishman was a Manhattan architect and served on the board of directors for the Educational Alliance. So this very famous architect was walking down the street when a bunch of debris fell off a building Mm. that was unsafe. That's horrible. She was killed by her own petard there. Was she? Did she design the building? No, but it's like she was in charge of, like, building standards and, like, yeah. Um, uh, Claudine uh, Auger who was born Claudine Auger, mm-hmm. a French actress, best known for her portrayal as a Bond girl. I'm always sad when a Bond girl passes away. I know, away. it's it not seems... good. What, sorry, she was, is she Thunderball? She was in Thunderball. Uh, she, was she? Yes, she was yeah? Domino. Okay. Domino, Domino. She was Domino in Thunderball. I hate Thunderball. Yeah, I don't love Thunderball. It's yeah. weird that it's by Nothing far the most. Nothing against her. Like, no. Domino's fine, but. but... It's, it, Thunderball is the definition of the audience's one movie behind, because it is the most successful Bond film. No, I know. By but far. All because of Goldfinger. And it's the one that's right after Goldfinger. Yeah, the weirdest yeah. thing about Thunderball is that because of the McCrory issue, they just keep trying to remake the fucking thing. And I'm just like, It's the only it one where the go. rights are semi. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah. it go. Uh, yeah. Um,. Randy Seuss, who was the co-founder of the CBBS Bulletin Board, which is the very first BBS, very first Bulletin Board Neat. system online. Um, uh, he, along with uh, a, with his partner, uh, develop, started development during a blizzard in Chicago and then basically got the board online within four weeks in 1978. Cool. Yeah. Well, then it's all his fault. Uh, yeah, what, all the internet? All of this. <laughs> all of this. All right. This thing where people at one point quite Pollyannishly would have been like, boy, connecting people will lead to great change and social upheaval right. and people will not. be better. No, don't, don't let us talk to each other. That's right. an awful idea. Yeah. Um, another notable, and somebody we actually talked about maybe possibly doing the show about, but it didn't seem like it was going to uh, be, be uh, able to be done, and that is Ram Das. Uh, who right. was a uh, spiritual leader and, guy, and died and born as uh, under the name Richard Alpert, uh, also known as Baba Ram Das. He was uh, an American spiritual teacher, academic, clinical psychologist, author of many books, including pretty much the book on m- m- meditation and mindfulness for many years, the book Be Here Now. 
Um, he also was uh, affiliated with Timothy Leary, was a big proponent of uh, um, ex mind expansion through drugs and um, and yeah, and uh, and just a huge uh, intellectual figure in in uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Um, Elizabeth Spencer, who uh, was an American writer, her first novel was published in 1948. Uh, she wrote nine novels, seven collections of short, sto short stories. Uh, most notably, her novella, A Light in the Piazza, was adapted for the screen in 1962 and then transformed into a Broadway musical. Um, Light in the Piazza is a fantastic story um, about um, a developmentally challenged woman who lives in Venice with her mother and uh, has a, um, a, a love affair. Um, so yeah, uh, okay, Ali Willis, who was an American songwriter and director. She was nominated for an Emmy Award for I'll Be There For You, which was the theme song of Friends. God. Yeah. She, she also composed hit singles for several other artists, including Neutron Dance, mm -hmm. uh, What Have I Done to Deserve This by Pet Shop Boys. That, I just cannot get enough of that song. What have I done to deserve this? Oh, such a good song. Yeah, it's <laughs> a, a good, good song. song. Yeah, that should have been the theme yeah. song for Friends. Yeah, she also <laughs> she uh, she won two Grammy awards, one for Beverly Hills Cop and one for The Color Purple. She also co-wrote hit songs like September and Boogie Wonderland for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2018. Um, Joseph Siegel, who was an American entrepreneur and the founder of Q of QVC and the Franklin Mint. Uh, Bob Daddio Wade, Daddio. That's why you wanted to put him on the list, right? I kind of, I, I do like. Yeah. Do you like anytime anyone named Daddio dies? <laughs> I mean, I no, I want them to live forever. I, you know, uh, he was an American artist based in Austin, Texas. He basically helped create uh, the Texas Cosmic Cowboy Counterculture. That is a mouthful. Mm -hmm. um, Can't say I've ever uh, Googled that. There you go. He uh, he he mostly made oversized, sort of ironic versions of Texas symbols. Like uh, he made a forty-foot-long giant iguana, which is known as Iggy, and sat on top of the Lone Star Cafe in New York City. Wow! From nineteen seventy-eight to nineteen eighty-nine. Uh, Broadway uh, composer and lyricist Jerry Herman. Um, he. So, are you familiar? You're not really a Broadway guy, so no. I'm going to say you're not familiar with Jerry Herman. But Jerry Herman. Wrote uh, the scores for Hello Dolly, Mame, and La Casual Fall. Uh, he was nominated for the Tony Award five times. He won twice for Hello Dolly and for La Casual Fall. Um, he he also uh, uh, sort of interestingly, um, Hello Dolly was up against Funny Girl at the Tonys, and it swept, won ten Tony Awards. No musical hit, uh, broke that record until the producers. Hmm. Um, uh, Herman was also one of the first people diagnosed to be HIV positive in 1985 who was uh, fortunate enough to see the experimental drug therapies actually take hold mm -hmm. allowed him to continue working and staying alive uh, so a person that we we, we held on to um, mm -hmm. you know if you've been listening to the show you know that we did a show about the AIDS epidemic we did. And, and all the people that we lost and it's nice to know that a few people escaped mm -hmm. I believe that actually was a year ago uh, this month. Was it? Was yeah, because it was Bush, and he died in December. Yeah, there you go. Eighteen. So yeah. yeah. Uh, Joseph Charles Jones, who was an American civil rights leader and attorney, he was the co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, and he was chairperson of the SNCC's Direct Action Committee. He was born in Chester, South Carolina. He led and participated in several sit-in movements during the 1960s. Um, uh, and uh, in 1961, he joined the Freedom Riders, driving from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, to Birmingham, Alabama, and he was later arrested in Montgomery. So to give you a bit of background on this, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is often pronounced SNCC, uh, was the principal channel of student commitment to the American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. It, it emerged from student sit-ins uh, and uh, wound up protesting at lunch counters, and it helped to coordinate and assist, but not actually lead or direct local direct action initiatives, uh, and was sort of instrumental in bringing about the changes that uh, that we that American society saw in the 1960s. Uh, so, 
American singer, musician, and actor. Tom, this one is in here because of the name. I'm mm-hmm. just going to say that. Uh, uh, American singer, musician, and actor Thomas Paulsley LaBeouf, who was known as Sleepy LaBeef. <laughs> Which I just and come on. Is he? Sh- he's not shy as father. No, he's not even related. Wow! But I just love. We lost Sleepy Labeef, guys. Yep. Uh, Lee Mendelson, who was an American television producer, best known as the executive producer of the Peanuts cartoons. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, Don Imus, American radio personality and all around shit fucking <laughs> yes. asshole. No one was sad that day. Yeah. Um, I'm not even going to say more. He's just a yeah. racist piece of shit. Yep. Um, Sue Lyon, who played Lolita in the right. 62 Lolita. Yeah. Uh, we're that old. We're that old. Yeah. She uh, uh, she joined the entertainment industry as a model at the age of 13. She won a Golden Globe for playing the role in Lolita. Her other notable film appearances include Night of the Iguana, Seven Women, Tony Rome, and Evil Knievel in 1971. Um. Okay, uh, Julie Berman. Julie Berman was a trans uh, activist in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she spoke quite memorably at the Trans Day of Remembrance event in 2017, delivering a speech about transphobia in Toronto. Talked about a trans friend of hers that was murdered, and then a little over two years later, she was assaulted and murdered. Um, it's uh, so someone was quoted as saying the same thing that she was trying to be a vocal about happened to her. Um, Toronto police said they found her suffering from head injuries in a residence on Brunswick Avenue near Harvard. She was transported to hospital and pronounced dead, and they did catch the guy and charged him with second-degree murder. Uh, Vaughn Oliver, who was a British graphic designer, he uh, his studio was called 23 Envelope, um, he had a close relationship with the record label 4AD, and um, between 1982 and 1998, he uh, designed uh, records and covers for uh, Lush, The Cocteau Twins, Dead Can Dance, The Breeders, This Mortal Coil, Pale Saints, Pixies, and Throwing Muses. Uh, so a massive influence on, if you're a fan at all of sort of alternative music of the 80s and 90s, you know, this, this guy's covers kind of helped define what, what the through line is for that. Uh, so we actually had, and we're going to talk about the other one in a minute, but there were actually two notable Python-related, Monty Python-related mm-hmm. losses this month. One was Terry Jones, who's going to be, I guess we're going to call it an honor roll call, so we might as well do that. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah been declining for a few years not a huge yeah. surprise he was suffering yeah. from alzheimer's and dementia uh, which is awful uh, among you know the many other things that are awful yeah. about somebody that important dying and um, he you know i we saw him uh, there was a documentary about the pythons a few years ago mm-hmm. and he came he was here in toronto and this was this was maybe four years ago and it was clear that he was uh, flagging he was having mm-hmm. a very hard time keeping up with the conversation Yep. Yeah. Anyway, go on. No, I wasn't. That, yeah. I wasn't going anywhere with that. It's. It's just the. You know. It's. It's an awful thing. Um, yeah. 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 He, I. He, he was an, a kind of amazing human face of dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to think of Jones as the, uh, in a lot of ways, sort of the the gathering force of Monty Python. Like the yep. others might have been better uh, performers, um, but he was an amazing director and obviously an amazing writer. Um, and just there was a real uh, humanist spine to the work that he did, and he was also incredibly fucking funny. We were saying before the show started that, you know, all the Pythons sure like to get into a dress. Nobody was better at it than him. No one took it further than him. He would go complete, well, I mean, he would literally go naked if he had to. You can say (laughs) that he's not as good a performer, but he's probably, I mean, except for maybe Chap. The range, I guess, but where he could, <laughs> where he could have something sit in his wheelhouse, yeah, a, an incredibly effective performance, yeah, absolutely. Re- like again, playing women, mm-hmm. he never. It's never a caricature. It's a believably female performance mm-hmm. in a way that is really hard to do, yeah, um, and still really funny. Like yeah. I would say, Chapman is more of a leading man mm-hmm. type. And you know, Cleese is just a lunatic. But but yeah, but 
I don't think that all works without Terry Jones. Yeah. And and to your point, I think he's the one, if you watch the interviews and sort of documentaries about them, he's the one that would call them up and go, guys, we should really get back together and do something. Mm-hmm. And we should really continue this association. And I, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that a lot of the sort of back half of Python, things like the, the Hollywood Bowl concert, like none of that would have happened yeah. if it wasn't for Terry Jones. And... You know, Gilliam gets all the credit as the sort of visual stylist director, but I I gotta tell you, I don't think he's funny. Uh, definitely, <laughs> right? Definitely right. And like, so if you look at the direction, uh, at directing a movie as sort of two things: creating visuals, but also like, especially for comedies, uh, creating comedic, truthful moments. Yeah. Like I don't think that and that, pace and, tone and pace and all that, like that stuff. Yeah, life of Brian and and meaning of life and and Holy Grail don't work without Terry Jones because there's just no. I mean, you know, maybe they look good, but they don't have that whatever. He just had that ability to put scenes together in a way that's really pretty amazing. I I have a dirty secret as a Python fan, which is that I I mean I obviously I love Holy Grail and Life of Brian. I just don't th- I don't feel like I love them as much. As anyone, as everyone else, and I think one That's of the reasons. That's not a dirty secret. Well, yeah. I think one of the reasons for that, with just those two, is that because at least theoretically, the two Terrys were sharing directorial duties. Yeah, I feel like they're pulling against themselves a lot in those two movies, and then in Meaning of Life, when they just annex Terry G to the the prequel short, and then right. the, the middle of the movie, and then let Jones just kind of master the rest of the film. That's the first one where it just felt perfectly tranquil and calm to me. Like I was like, oh, this is a movie where every scene is is being put together by someone who knows exactly what they're trying to do, whether it's Gilliam in the in the in the early part or or Jones through the rest. And I I, don't, I wouldn't say it's even my favorite of the three, but for me it felt like the one where they kind of landed it. They're like, it's this the is truest, what we're trying to do. I mean, it's the truest to the show, and it's the most fun in terms of like, oh, it's nice to see them just do sketches, right? Yeah, for sure. Whereas the other two are attempting to do some kind of long form narrative that works sketch elements into it. Yeah. Um, and look, I'm I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not saying that they're not both amazing. Yeah. You know, they they're are both, both amazing. They're both amazing. They're both amazing. But I but I, I but I get it. I get yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And you know, uh, his career is not as varied or as long as Gilliam's. But uh, he made some very good films. Personal yeah. Services is a which you have not seen. Right? I don't think so. No. So it's this is quite interesting. So so I I do want to quickly tell this sort of story about this this movie because most people have never heard of it. Um, there's a writer uh, who who originated this project for this film called Personal Services. Uh, it was based on the life of a real person in the UK who ran a very uh, um, let's call it. Uh, um, uh, what's the word I want here? Not eccentric, um, but like that. Uh, um, uh, uh, whorehouse. Uh, eclectic. <laughs> well, That's me, the word I'm looking for. Let me tell you for. something. Eccentric is not a synonym for whorehouse. No, no, no. No, no. Like a very eclectically sort of like open, sex positive kind of, kind of uh, prof- you know, uh, service. And so she had this very interesting life. The writer's name is David Leland. He had previously written Mona Lisa for Neil Jordan. So he wrote this story about this uh, this this madam. Julie Walters played her in the movie. Mm-hmm. So she plays her as about a 45-year-old, 50-year-old woman. And it's it's very funny. Jones's direction is great. It's a very British kind of sex comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, he got so – Leland got so interested in this character and this person that he simultaneously wrote a second movie – about her as a teenager called Wish You Were Here, which he directed himself, which starred Emily Lloyd, who is one of the lost great British actresses uh, of the 1980s and early 90s. She was super hot for about uh, five years there and then just like disappeared off hmm. the map. She's a wonderful actress. Both films are very different, both about the same person. Both came out basically in the same year. They're not really related to each other, except mm-hmm. that Leland both wrote both the screenplays, but they're both terrific. Okay. Uh, and personal services is really like, like what you would expect from someone who had sort of gleefully enjoyed watching grown men wear women's underwear and stuff. You know, like it's a very funny, mm-hmm. very British kind of comedy. Fantastic. Yeah, highly recommend. All right. Um, yeah, and so yeah, like I really like kind of where he went uh, uh, post Python. Um, I haven't seen Ripping Yarns, which I would really like to see, but that's the other. Uh, it's a collaboration he did with Eric Idle. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, he's that's you know, I think we're I think the reason this hurts is that this really feels like like this is really like there's no more Python now. When Graham died, I felt like it was like, well, we can sort of keep going. But oh like, yeah, yeah, no, this it's, doesn't feel like that. This is maybe the end. Yeah, this is this is the end. And as Cleese tweeted this morning, <laughs> four to, two down, four two to down, go, four to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's you know typical like, Cleese. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I'm such a Socratic perfectionist on stuff like this that once Chapman was gone, I was like, well, that it's not really like Python. No, continues. of course, it's of course. it's done. Um, anyway, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Man. Yeah, it's a tough. I mean, it's it isn't because again, I knew he was ill, and like I'm I'm sure it's it was it was a hard one death. That is a difficult way to go, and you know, yeah. better that he's 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 done with it. Um, yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, it would have been neat to have a conversation with that guy sometime, and I never will. But yeah. I probably wasn't going to anyway because I'm just here in Toronto. Yeah. So in addition, um, earlier in the month, uh, Neil Innes died. Yeah. So, and Neil Innes was obviously not a, a charter member of Python, but he's kind of like an unofficial member, um, and came, I think, probably from the other side of the group, which is more like the singer-songwriting side of it. Python is uh, incredibly musical as a, as mm-hmm. a, a troupe. So he wrote, uh, collaborated on The Ruddles, um, wrote Knights of the Round Table and Brave Sir Robin for, mm-hmm. for uh, Holy Grail. Um, uh, he's one of the monks that bashes his own head uh, in Holy Grail. The Knights Who Say Knee. The Knights Who Say Knee. Um, oh, wait. Is it the Knights no, Who Say No, no, no. It's not the head? Knights Who Say Knee. No. It's the ones who go, Om Nima. Yeah, those guys, those Boom. guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're right. no. um, uh, yeah, so he's kind of known as the Seventh Python. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Bentley Casal, who was an attorney uh, in litigation counsel, um, was a uh, was a judge, um, specialized in real estate and matrimony, but his sole criminal matter was representing Lenny Bruce on his obscenity charge. Nice. <laughs> um, Jack Sheldon, who was a jazz trumpeter and uh, sidekick on the Merv Griffin uh, show, but who's most known as being the singer on most of the Schoolhouse Rock classics. So he's mm. the one that sang Just a Bill and Conjunction <laughs> Um uh, David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA from 1984 until 2014. Wow. So, yeah, think about where the NBA was in 1984 and where it was when he left it. That, mm-hmm. is, a, that is a legacy. Yeah. Um, I don't think in 1984 you could have talked to someone and said, do you ever see football being usurped as the American sport like there's what would the chances have been one in a million mm-hmm. and yet here we are right yeah probably um, yeah uh, Martin uh, Marty Greb was a keyboardist uh, guitarist saxophonist um, was with the Buckinghams um, toured with a number of artists including uh, Leon Russell Elton John and was a member of the Bonnie Raitt band for 25 years uh, Don Larson passed away. Don Larson was a baseball pitcher, the only pitcher to ever pitch a perfect game in the World Series. Cool. Yeah. And for those of you who are not big baseball fans, a perfect game is 27 batters up, 27 down. No hits, no walks. In the World Series. In the World Series. Imagine imagine getting to the ninth inning, having retired 24 straight batters, and having to go out there and get the next three. Yeah. That's pretty good. Like, what is the pressure and of what that? what is that other team thinking about yeah, right there? Yeah. They're just like, for Step fucks. in and get hit by a pitch, guys. Safe. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. let them do this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Richard. Oh, this was interesting, too. Richard John uh, Maponia, who was uh, born in the Transvaal, was a South African entrepreneur and a property developer. Um, he built a business empire in Soweto, despite being subject to uh, the restrictions of apartheid. Um, he, sorry, one sec. I've lost my place. God damn it. One it's all right. Second. You know. Yeah. There, I'm back. Um, so during the 1960s and 70s, he was a member of the Urban Bantu Council. He resigned in 1977. He was affiliated with the African National Ca- Congress. Uh, in uh, and, and basically, he... Uh, he identified uh, a plot of land in Soweto and built a mall there. Hmm. Um, and 
Uh, he opened them upon Yamal. It has more than 200 stores and a cinema complex. He's incredibly important to the economic development of the region. Um, he also was the first black person to, uh, to be able to own racehorses in South Africa. The colors he chose were green, gold, and black, the colors of the ANC. Oh, That's his horses were? For, for the racehorse colors, yeah. So he basically decided, fuck you, I'm going to choose. <laughs> like, I can't believe he could do that under apartheid, but he chose the colors of the ANC for this racehorse. So he spray paints his horse? No, no. This is the colors of the silks that the horse is wearing. Silks. Have you ever seen a horse race? Not really. Okay. No. They wear silks. Okay. Uh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth uh, Wurzel, who Wurzel. wrote Prozac Nation. Oh, yeah. And uh, and died. Um, uh, Silvio Horta, who was an American screenwriter and uh, created the uh, Ugly ABC Betty. version of Ugly Betty. Yeah. Yeah, that really sucks. That sucks. He, uh, yeah. he committed suicide. And uh, there are a lot of, there was a lot of conversation afterwards about sort of where is Hollywood failing the mental health of its uh, professionals? Everywhere? Yeah. Well, everywhere. Time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, part of the part of the world but you know that community specifically was was shaken by that yeah yeah it sucks he's that's an and i don't know if you watched ugly betty when I it was did. on enormously yeah. enormously it was a lovely show. show yeah remember when regular terrestrial television was good yeah yeah it's gone now uh okay um ed kooky burns who was uh, er, someone you wanted to say because his name was kooky no well that was his character name ed burns <laughs> was an actor he was on uh 77 sunset strip Played a character named Kooky. All right. Who was essentially he was the Fonz before the Fonz. Okay. Um, he uh, he he was also he also charted with the song Kooky Kooky Lend Me Your Comb. I swear to God that's a real mm-hmm. song mm-hmm. that charted. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Seventy Seven Sunset Strip is sort of like an old school like dragnet kind of, right? Okay. It's a police drama was it, thing. Was it set in seventy uh, seven? It was set. It, no, it was set on the Sunset Strip Damn. in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, John Crosby was a uh, provincial and federal politician. He was uh, the twelfth lieutenant governor of Newfoundland and Labrador. He was a cabinet minister under Joey Smallwood, uh, as well as a cabinet minister in the Joe Clark government, and for Brian Mulroney as a cabinet minister under Mulroney. He was known to be outspoken and controversial. While he was the justice minister. Uh, he was in a heated debate with Sheila Copps. Mm-hmm. He famously told her, just quiet down, baby. Oh, God. Uh, prompting Copps to respond, I'm nobody's baby, which I kind of like. Um, he, uh, uh, she also wound up titling her biography, Nobody's Baby, hmm. based on that. But the fact is that even though he was sort of politically incorrect and not very not very nice sometimes, he was actually a social liberal in practice. He was pro-choice. Uh, he liberalized divorce laws. He was also an early advocate of gay and lesbian rights. So where it counted, mm. he actually, you know, did the right thing. Right on. Uh, even though sometimes he would say the wrong thing. Ivan uh, uh, Passer was a Czech film director and screenwriter. He, he actually went to boarding school with Milos Forman and Vaclav Havel. And uh, Jerzy Skolomowski. Um, but he wound up collaborating with Foreman on all of Foreman's Czech films, including Loves of a Blonde and Fireman's Ball. And he, he introduced Foreman to Miroslav uh, Andrzejczyk, who was Foreman's DP. Um, he went on to make uh, some prominent American films, including Cutter's Way in 1981, which is like an all-timer. Great movie. Uh, okay. Uh, this is tough. Neil Pert. Drummer for Rush. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm not a Rush guy. Everyone really freaked out, and I this is bad. respect that. Yeah. But I am not a Rush guy. So Neil Peart uh, was also one of the few drummers who was also— I mean, who am I kidding? I'm not even a music guy. Fair enough. Yeah. Neil Peart was also one of the few drummers who was also the lyricist. He wrote all the lyrics for Rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, for many years, there was a course you could take at McMaster just on Neil Peart's lyrics, because um, they are good. Uh, but also, and this is the thing about him that I think is sort of the most remarkable— is that he was a rock drummer who decided at some point that he wanted to take apart his drumming technique and learn to drum jazz style rather than rock style. Mm-hmm. And he did it. Hmm. He, he basically relearned how to play these... In, Rush songs are incredibly complicated. They have time signature changes all over the place. They're not easy to play for the best drummer 
anyway. He took it apart and put it back together again. Mm. It's kind of amazing, right? It's like a golfer going, I'm going to take my swing apart and just start over and do it a different way. Like, it's not, you don't do that mm-hmm. and come out the other side of it. And he did that. So that's that's my, my personal story about Neil Peart that I think is, like, kind of amazing to think about just on a physical sure. uh, level. Um. Anyway, yeah, there you go. Tony uh, Tony Garnett, who was a British film producer, he produced uh, most of the early Ken Loach films, including Cass. Oh man, that's a good movie. That is a yeah, that's it is a, a really good movie. Good movie. Yeah. If you haven't seen, I mean, Poor Ken, Cal. Ken, by the way, Ken Loach, great filmmaker. Yeah, but if you haven't yeah. seen Cass, please yeah. get yourself a copy. Did you that. know Cass was made for TV? I did. Yeah, I that's did. Pretty amazing. That. Yeah, yeah, and it looks incredible. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Uh, he also he had a kind of interesting career after that. So he produced a lot of other films. They're basically they're basically all entertainments. Um, Earth Girls Are Easy, <laughs> uh, Follow That Bird, the Sesame Street movie, <laughs> and uh, Fat Man and Little Boy, which is the movie about the <laughs> Enola Gay, right? Oh yeah. And but he said like when I'm making these movies, they're entertainments, but they always have to be about something. Yeah. Earth Girls Are Easy is about prejudice. Yep. Right. Like these. Let's follow that bird about. Uh, also about um, ostracism. And it is. It is. It is. So, like, he, you know, he he did these films that, like, are very sort of fluffy, whatever, but they actually are kind of about things, which is always yeah. nice. Um, I did want to take a minute to call out the victims of the uh, the Iranian um, uh, tragedy, the, the, sure, the yeah. airliner. That's, that's uh, So for those of you who are not Canadian that are listening to this, um, like, that is – hard to really quantify how big a tragedy that is. Mm-hmm. There, the, the, the Persian community in Canada is not that big. To lose 60 people all at once means I feel like it means virtually everyone in the community either knew someone or knows someone that knew someone. Mm-hmm. So that is that is generational trauma. That yeah. is not survivable. Right? You're, you're talking about an event that will define that community forever. Yep. It's, it's, and it happened well, I won't get too political let's, right now, but let's just say that situation was avoidable. Sure. Um, sure. If anything. only they hadn't been asking for it. No, I no, <laughs> That's not what I mean. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Just a few more. Uh, Julie Strain died, which I couldn't believe. Julie Strain was uh, Penthouse Pet, mm-hmm. Pet of the Year, and sort of queen of the B-movies. She was a six-foot-eight-tall Amazon crazy lady, just incredibly built and amazing. I really thought you were going to say queen of the beaver, and I was going to let no. you go with it. No, no, <laughs> But she's the she's the uh, she was married to Kevin Eastman, who, co- who co-created uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Uh, she was the uh, inspiration for the main character in Heavy Metal 2000 and voiced it. Um, she actually... Uh, uh, it was in the. It's weird because she was not that old. She was in the late stages of dementia. She suffered a case of retrograde amnesia due to a severe head injury when she fell from a horse, Yee. and then just declined. Uh, so nuts, right? Mm-hmm. That's how quickly you can just like you know that can be over. Um, Jaime uh, Humberto Hermosillo, who was a Mexican film director, who's often compared to uh, Almodovar. Um, probably his most famous film is Esmeralda Comes at Night, which played at TIFF. Uh, he also did a movie called Forbidden Homework. Uh, and then get, we're up to about this week. So Rocky Johnson mm-hmm. passed away. Rocky Johnson was a Canadian professional wrestler. He was one of, uh, he, he along with his partner T- Tony Atlas, were the first black tag team to win the World Tag Team Championship in the WWF. Um, his ring names were amazing. He was sometimes billed as Rocky Johnson. He was sometimes billed as Sweet Ebony Diamond. Uh, and he was also, uh, coincidentally, the father of actor and former professional wrestler Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, and in fact, in his, this is a nice bit of continuity. Do you know what Dwayne Johnson's first professional acting role was? Playing his father. Played his father Some, one, on one that our, 70s show. One of our listeners wrote that in on Twitter last week when, yeah. uh, when this happened. That was yeah. uh, that was news to me. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Christopher John Rule Tolkien. I know. Passed away. Christopher fucking Tolkien. Yeah. the I would say almost equally as important to the Lord of the Rings 
being a cultural force as the author was. Yeah. Like to a really weird degree. I mean, yeah. for a while it just seemed sort of creepy and sad that this guy was kind of just going through his dad's notes and publishing stuff out, but like A, he finished the Silmarillion, which Tolkien himself did not do. Yeah. B, yeah. he's probably the reason that the Lord of the Rings was successfully steered to becoming the market property it was today because god knows like if it had been up to certain members of the family i'm sure the rights to that thing would have just been sold to the studios in <laughs> 1972 cash in yeah, our versions would absolutely. have been rankin bass cartoons yeah yeah so the fact right. that there was a, a level of quality control exerted yeah. on this property that we're still feeling even as they're preparing for this amazon series is definitely down to christopher tolkien yeah um and and, yeah. and you know like it or not two-thirds of that hobbit trilogy <laughs> are his really like in oh, yeah. terms of all that connective tissue material oh, yeah. that's all his right oh for sure yeah. yeah but like i mean if you actually read the the work like i you know i i read baron and luthien when it was published a couple of years ago it's he does a very good job a scholarly job of trying yeah. to figure out how the pieces all fit together yeah 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 he had uh uh famously or not some inside dope he had help on the cimmerillion from fantasy author guy gabriel k who was uncredited but mm -hmm. did, did a lot of the heavy lifting yeah and by the way, I mean, people talk about the Silmarillion being hard to read. It is hard to read. It's still fucking great. Like, it's a fascinating book. Yeah. Hard yeah. to read how? Like, the way The Three Musketeers is hard to read? Eh, like, a bunch of episodes? Kind of. Or more like, it, it requires you to really sort of, it requires you to trade scales very rapidly between okay. <laughs> the gods and the people. But, like, I'm reading stuff from the 17th, 18th century. It's got to be no harder to read than that. Sure. You know, put a yeah. little effort in, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Therese uh, Tanguay Dion, who was popularly known as Maman Dion, mm. and was the mother of Céline Dion. Céline Dion. Um, I want to take a minute, a bit of an honor roll call here. Something else has died officially, and that is our friends, the show. See you next Wednesday. <laughs>
during a performance. He was in the middle of his third song when he stopped, apologized, and shut his eyes. He paused, he said, I'm sorry, put his chin on his chest, never dropped his guitar or fell off the stool. That's weird shit. Just dead. Wow. Yeah. I almost want to leave it there, but I also need to raise the point that two more people died today. Oh, I'm which, lost. Which was Jack Kehoe, the character actor. <gasps> he died today. And Joe Shishido, the, the yeah, Japanese dude know. with the cheeks, he died today. Um, today sucked. Yeah. <laughs> today was a straight up bad day. Yeah. Um, we can do we can do them in roll call uh, next. No, month. that's fine. Do you want to talk uh, about Jack Kehoe? Because I don't remember. No, I, I I I'm not. I figured he'd be someone you'd know more about than me because yeah, he's more I don't. of a character actor guy. So again, let's let's do the homework on that next. Sure. Next for next month. Um, anyway, I, I want to apologize to Matt Damon. We are out of time, uh, but we are going to <laughs> definitely. Oh, Jack Kehoe get, died. Yeah, he did. He totally oh, did. Oh, he was great. We are definitely going to get around to the uh, to the to the rest of our show tomorrow night. Uh, I don't know if before the next like we we're at the forty five minute point here. I don't know next episode maybe uh, you want to like fax me your short list, dude. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> it just kept going. It's, it's one of these things where it was a where huge month. It, it was, was a huge month. Huge it was a long month. time. It yeah, was yeah. a lot of people. I'm yeah. saying, you know, we, I hope we haven't depressed everyone. You know what? You should be. Depressed. This meant a lot to... of excellent people. Have Here's died. the thing. This roll call thing has taken on a life of its own. That's right. Well, it, it was always meant you know, to be just a quick pit stop. Yeah, this will be the just show. Just a few names. This should be the show. Meanwhile, it's just me reading names for like 45 minutes. <laughs> well, it's, it's names, but now you've started getting into here some interesting information about them, and here's what they Well, do I don't want to give anybody no, the know, short shrift. I know, so you give a little bit of context, and I feel like I'm learning something. That's good. I'm like, you know how you, you uh, would realize like your parents were always reading the obituaries? You're like, what are you yeah. doing that for? Yeah. That's me now. That's you. Yeah. That's basically your thing. Yeah. Um, all right. Listen, speaking of obituaries, let's talk about Sid Mead. Uh, bio information about Sid Mead. Mead was born in Minnesota in 1933. He was the son of a Baptist minister who used to read uh, to him from the science fiction pulp magazines such as uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. I think we all know where that all led. Uh, Meade was adept at drawing by the time he was in high school. He enlisted in the Army for three years and then went to the Art Center School in Los Angeles, from which he graduated in 1959. From there, he was recruited to work for the Ford Motor Company's Advanced Styling Studio. Okay. So there you go. So he started off in practical yeah, design. Exactly. Right he started out in, uh, yeah, industrial design. He became a freelance industrial designer, uh, running his own company by 1970 with clients including Philips Electronics and Intercontinental Hotels. Didn't occur to me that part of the secret sauce of how Mead made designs work was it would have been from the hotel industry. But as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes oh, yeah. sense. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because a, a lot of what makes the ships great are like, oh, these beds are practical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this, yeah. Exactly. This food container makes sense. That's yeah, right. yeah. You know, like, yeah. and I was thinking about the way hotels would always try to look futuristic in the seventies, and then eventually, like on Star Trek, the, the Enterprise on Next Gen looked like a hotel. I was like, yeah. "This all feels meaty to me." Yeah, um, in meaty. the eighties, <laughs> meaty. In the eighties, he'd also develop relationships with uh, Sony, Minolta, and uh, Bandai, which is the toy company responsible for, among other things, Tamagotchi, Gundam, and my favorite, SH Figuarts. I didn't know that until I found that out yesterday. So, obviously, it was Blade Runner that fully cemented him in the world of futurism design for film, although he also contributed to Star Trek, the motion picture prior to that. Um, and Alien, though. Uh, no, not Alien. So, oh, he worked on Aliens. Okay. So, Cameron brought him in based on Blade Runner. Um, I watched both Dangerous Days and uh, Superior Firepower last night trying to get stories on sort of how Cameron and Scott ended up reaching out to Meade. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no information in there at all. They was just like, oh, he sent me a script. So I the, read it and I liked it, so I did it. So the question is, sorry, before we get too yeah. far into Mead, on yeah. Alien, Giger didn't do the ship. No. Or any of the – so who did that stuff? I can't recall. Anyway, I mean, sorry, that's all, I just – yeah. Because I, I, start, I really thought I'm, – <laughs> I'm really laboring under the false impression that that's a Sid Mead thing, that he did the ships and Giger did the creature. No, it's it, it is someone not. else. I can't remember yeah, okay. who. All right. And hey, if I'm getting this completely wrong, feel free to write in. And no, no, I'm but, sure I'm wrong. But I mean, yeah. it was the team that was going to do Dune for Yodorowsky. Okay. Um, okay. I don't think Mead was one of those guys. Okay, fair. Anyway, all right, all right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I may be wrong. Uh, yeah. So he, as as he also like I said at the at the top, he also did Tron. He did Al so in Aliens, he did like the Sulaco. He did the dropship out of the Sulaco. Right. Like all right. of the kind of the hardcore military design, and he also did yeah. a lot of the interiors and stuff. Um, and the, funnily enough, in the in the movie that that I'm going to talk about, 2010. 
further to your theory, re-alien, the interior of that ship is literally the fucking Nostromo. Like, it's, you know, shot for shot, page for page. He just basically redesigned the Nostromo. So who knows? Um, He worked in film through the end of his life. He always had an eye towards the practicality of his own designs. For example, when Peter Hyams approached him to work on the core. Yeah, he worked on the core. Right on. He found a fundamental design error in the concept of the drilling machine, and so Hyams changed the script. (laughs) There you go. Let me tell you, the core is craptastic. Oh, it is craptastic. It is great to watch and really fun. It has perhaps my favorite line of dialogue in any preposterous science fiction film. Is it What If We Could? Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's one of the the, great moments in the history of science fiction. Yeah, they literally go, this is not just impossible, but also stupid. We shouldn't do this. And the answer is, well, what if we could do it? Yeah. (laughs) I use that in workplace scenarios an awful lot. Yeah. But what if we could? Yeah. And I feel like that's Sid Mead talking. Yeah. What if we could? A little bit. Um, So I watched 2010. You watched Mission to Mars. Who goes first? I did. Why don't I quick go first? Because I think I feel like Mission to Mars is maybe not the best movie to watch for Sid Mead or really to watch. Uh, It is not a very good movie. Um, but I also think it's a movie that you know has a very specific set of design challenges around the mission that are very easily met. I'm not sure why you would go to someone like Sid Mead. Like he seems unnecessary to make these things work. It's pretty much spacesuits and regular ships and a space station, and mm-hmm. there's no new ideas in it. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of interesting on that level of like, I wonder if he just took it because he's like, I'll take your money. Like there's, I, I don't feel like he had to work very hard. I don't, I, so you know, like, again, there's, I, there's not too much in it that it felt like really like new or different or unusual. I watched, you know, some documentary special features about him last night, and I got to say, I mean, he just seemed like a really amiable guy. He might have just been like, "Yeah, yeah you going to make a Mars movie? Yeah, absolutely. Let's count Let's me in, do right? It. Let's yeah. make a Mars yeah. movie. So it's it's got some nice stuff on the surface of Mars. There's a sort of a cool greenhouse that's set up there and stuff, and the rover's cool and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, but mostly like the interplanetary stuff seems very. Like, it seems a bit ordinary. Mm. Um, so I don't really, unfortunately, I don't have a lot to say about Mission to Mars other okay. than that. Yeah. Did you like Gary Sinise? What's with the eyeliner? I don't know. What is with it? Yeah, I don't understand weird. the choices. Uh, Was this like the last Brian De Palma movie you hadn't seen? I think, well, I haven't seen the early ones that he did with De Niro, The High Mom and Greetings and those because mm. they just seemed bad. So I haven't seen any of those. Right. Uh, maybe I should at some point. Maybe, but uh, but yeah, pretty much I've seen. Uh, no, because and then to in order to like complete De Palma, I watched the movie Obsession, which is really good and fun. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I'm I'm sorry to have to disappoint you. I didn't actually like 2010 that much. Interesting. Now, I don't I, think it's the best, I but I do s- like it. I will start with the Sid Mead stuff. Sure. Um, because the movie looks incredible. Yeah. Right. Not just because of his stuff. Like just yeah. in general, like just in terms of visual effects, the stuff and, that and the Ed ability doing to revisit and... what's going on in two thousand one, but not actually repeat visually what's going on in Not even slightly. Like Hyams isn't even attempting to find the same visual language, which I you know, I thought was interesting. Um it looks great. The effects are all fantastic. Um the the, the early era CGI at the end when Jupiter's getting sucked into itself and, and yeah. the, the monoliths are all flying in a cloud and stuff. I was like, this is nineteen eighty four. Four. Like this yeah. is impressively early era work, and again, yeah. it's all. Richard there's also Edmund, brilliant so. weightless stuff in it. Eh, yeah, it's pretty stuff good with the pens and the like. There's yeah. some really yeah. good stuff in there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting from a from a Sid Mead perspective. So he basically he designs the the Leonov, which is the the Russian spacecraft that they go out to Jupiter to find the um, the discovery with. And I thought it was interesting that uh, first of all, it's a very Sid Mead design. You know, it's big, chunky. Yeah. ship it's got yeah. this rotating passenger section that's flying around the middle of it um it doesn't look like the established design aesthetic of the kubrick film at all you know yeah. not even yeah. slightly now yeah. i don't know if the decision making process to that was it's the russians so let's just go completely a different way i think i think that's part of it or yeah. if it was all more of just sort of hey sid do whatever the fuck you want like no. i don't know no i think i think part of it is the idea that it represents a different political structure a different political culture mm-hmm. And so it's got to look significantly different from the American ship that right. goes out there the first time. Because the weird thing, I mean, so I got to tell you, watching a film from 1984 that is a sequel to a film from 1968 that takes place in 2010, that is therefore nine years after the film from 1968, 
and I'm doing all this in 2020, it did my fucking head in, man. Like, it was hard to just work out the temporal relationships yeah. between the real world, the fantasy world, yeah. the book, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the book yeah. was written in 1982. Yeah. You know, like, it's just, I was. it was very hard work. But, like, trying to piece together what the design principles of the movie might be. Yeah. And how, like, even stuff like, okay, it's only nine years since the Discovery won. What might have not much probably has changed in terms of physical technology. So I mean, I appreciate that. Again, like the interior of the ship, it's it's gorgeous, but it's such a direct rip off of the yeah. Nostromo yeah. that it's you know you've definitely seen that all before. Um, so the thing that I said about two thousand one, sorry, two thousand ten, as a movie was that <laughs> it looks terrific and it's incredibly boring to watch, which I realized is basically what you could say about two thousand and one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you could. I don't, but. Here I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt on on thematics and conceptual aspects because I'm just sort of like I didn't find the actual plot and the actual character uh, arcs that interesting enough to really kind of ratchet up the the suspense of the situation. I guess it's an interesting story. You're overall. not, al- yeah, and you're not alone. The movie was a flop. Oh right? yeah. yeah, let's yeah. be clear. It was not a big successful movie yeah. any more than 2001 was a big successful mm-hmm. movie when it came out. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, you know, we have a sort of common understanding of what happens in 2001. Yeah. That the world actually did not have before 2010 came out. Mm-hmm. It actually explains what happened. And I think apart from everything else that the movie has to do, it actually has a responsibility to do that. Yeah. Like, its whole point is to go, look, here's what happened in this movie that has confounded all of you for 15 years. Yeah. Right? And on that level, it's very successful. And sure. I really enjoy it. Because and I worry that it gave birth to this, you know, film culture we're in now where everything has an answer and, you know, you're supposed to explain perhaps, it all to the audience. Perhaps. <laughs> but it's a wonderful answer and a great explanation. I do really appreciate 2001 more as a result of 2001. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have seen that, but yeah. um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, it was certainly, you know, what the funniest thing that of all of the answers, quote unquote answers that it gives me for 2001. Yeah. The one that is the most obvious and yet had never occurred to me until I watched this movie last night was that the monolith in orbit of Jupiter was bigger than the ship. Like, I always just thought it was a bad special effect or they just didn't get the perspective right. And then that monolith out there at the end of 2001 was the same size as the moon monolith. No. And it was just framed incorrectly or whatever. No, no. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. It's this enormous two-kilometer-wide yeah. yeah. monolith. That's like, why it blows I, your mind well, when you see it. That's why, yeah. you know, so it was one of those moments where I was just like, oh, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> 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 I really love when yeah. movies can do that. So I want to I want to go back, circle back to Aliens for a minute because sure, I yeah. think you know he worked with so Cameron worked with Mead on Aliens. I think if you made an argument as to somebody who has, I, I would say the only person you could argue has usurped Sid Mead in terms of his ability to conceptualize how the future will work mechanically. It's actually James Cameron, which is funny because apparently Cameron. Uh, did not like Mead's take on the Sulaco, redesigned it for him, and the Sulaco that you see in the movie is is Mead's interpretation of Cameron's redesign. Okay. Yeah, so they, because, they collaborated quite closely on yeah, that. Cause yeah, because if you look at sort of among the many gifts uh, that Cameron has as a filmmaker, it's the designs of how the ships in a movie like Avatar work mm-hmm. are impeccable, right? The way that the underwater platform works in The Abyss is impeccable. And these are all things that he basically did himself and with his brother, who's an engineer. Yeah. And I, I don't know that he would have developed quite as far as fast if he hadn't worked with Mead. Yeah, probably not. You know, and I feel like that's there's a there's a piece there of the puzzle that that uh, yeah. would be easy to overlook. And there there was a, a moment in in Superior Firepower, which is the the documentary about aliens, where where Galen Hurd was saying, you know, one of the most exciting things for. Cameron and herself doing this project was that they were finally working at a budget level where they could bring in expert consultants like Mead to really yeah. influence sort of the futurism and the pieces of right. the design, where, whereas uh, up till then on the Corman films and on the Terminator, they'd sort of just had to make it up themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was a huge meeting of the minds. And I, like you said, I mean, Cameron, his brother, obviously a huge influence as well, and, and Cameron's become as good at it as anybody in the game. So... Uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to Avatar 2. Fuck all y'all. That's kind of what it comes down to. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, the most fun period of time, the part where people are dissing James Cameron before his movie comes yeah. out. Yeah. No, I learned that lesson 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, do we want to say anything about Blade Runner? I mean, I think the most interesting thing about Blade Runner, besides just sort of the 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 wealth of the design, is the amount of it that he had to make work within the budget constraints. So it's like you yeah. know, they had a backlot street that was a normal New York street. Mead had to come up with ways to make his designs make sense by basically creating like retrofitted applications that would fit on top of existing buildings. That's why you get a lot of the stuff where, you know, right, duck like the duck is on the outside and, and the yeah. billboards on the outside yeah. and all that, yeah. all that stuff, you know, so it's, it's, well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting practical solution to yeah. a problem. I have, having not read uh, the story, I don't know how much of what's in there is in the story. I doubt very much of it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's hard to tell. Like, I think, you know, if you look at what he did in other films, you can obviously point to things like the cars, the flying cars, and the other sort of like those things as being like, oh, yeah, that's a Sid Mead thing. But I think more about Blade Runner in terms of its views on culture, future the future of culture, mm. and things like the office and and, and building that the that the um, corporation mm-hmm. lives in, the way... Whalen Jutani? What is it? <laughs> no, that's no. an alien. Yeah. What the hell is the corporation called in Blade Runner? I think it is called the Wayland Corporation. No, it's anyway, something, something else. Anyway, uh, that anyway. building, that sort of pyramidal building yeah. that looks, you know, yeah, very. The ziggurat. Yeah. This, yeah, the ziggurat. Very, very uh, sort of iconic. Um, and then I think about kind of the design of the space at the end, which is in that uh, amazing building that has the courtyard built into the middle of mm-hmm. it with the railings and stuff, which is an existing building, but they would have. Done some stuff yeah, again, it. like the retrofitting you know, of, of existing yeah. and the and the robots, the little sort of toy robots that are mm-hmm. wandering around in there, and like all of that stuff. Like it's a lot more, like you say, it has a lot of breadth, and mm-hmm. I don't know how much of all of that is me directly, but it, but it, because he's not the production designer of that film, is he? No, I think he's just a art director, or possibly just like a okay. concept designer. Like okay, maybe the same as Macquarie on Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, maybe. So, so it's hard to tell how much of it because. The the influence of Blade Runner is not really in the ships. Like no, of course if, not. If that's what he did, he did a great job. But that's that's not. Like, no, I think there's a production design aspect there that's even more. No, I think important. the influence so, yeah. of of Mead on you know the Blade Runner stuff again. He did you know yeah. he he's he's responsible for a lot of the outside exterior looks of the buildings. I also. Right. Without having looked it up before we did this, I would say the interior of Deckard's depart- uh, apartment is 100% Mead because it's right. got that very right. kind of claustrophobic right. built-inside right. machinery right. look right. to it. Um, yeah. so, and you yeah. look at something like uh, Fifth Element and it's got a lot of those. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of those. Uh, well, that's what's really yeah. neat about kind of the way his career went on. I mean, he worked on Elysium. He worked on Tomorrowland, which are kind of like postmodern Mead movies anyway. Right. Like they right. would have looked like that anyway. Obviously, he also, he also apparently worked on Blade Runner 2049, which I still haven't seen and I never will. Um, wow. But, yeah, but uh, you know. I, the flag. I, no, well, I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's a good movie. I'm sure it's great. That's not the point. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like that 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 idea of him sort of even revisiting his own work and having to extend it even further, I think is really kind of yeah. neat. And, you know, yeah. Elysium's not a great movie, but looks fucking amazing. Yeah. 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 yeah I'd say Aliens is his sort of if you plant a flag on, like, what's the most influential, that's mm-hmm. probably the one. Like, yeah. just the way ships fit together and things drop out of other things. And Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I mean, that know. had a huge – I mean, he, yeah. I mentioned that he was, you know, helped design Gundam toy toy line it's like you can see the seeds of that talking to aliens quite a lot yeah in yeah. terms of the military hardware yeah anywho all right um that was great thanks yeah. this is our uh probably our longest episode ever we're over at the hour mark now it's pretty good episode 28 yeah coming is that up right? on, uh, i think so i all never right. know till i actually create the mp3 because right. i'm not good at record keeping all right but uh next so next month we are gonna we're gonna announce it right here live on the air we're and i've be, forgotten his name we're gonna be talking about buck henry buck henry who uh appears in the graduate yep co-created get smart with mel brooks yep uh co-wrote what i think is the movie you're gonna watch which i think is the best American studio comedy, uh, certainly of the 1970s, maybe of the last half of the of last century. And that is Heaven Can Wait. That is an enormous. Yeah. I mean, speaking of planning, not to flags. set it up too much. But oh, you, like, you've doomed me. Heaven Can Wait is fucking amazing. <laughs> well, so yeah. All right. Yeah, I love it. 
uh, unconditionally. Okay. Uh, yeah, I may watch it again just because I want to. What are you going to watch? Uh, so it's a good question. I uh, I have identified a couple of candidates. Well, you here. don't you don't have to give an answer today. I mean, you can you can soak in it like a warm bath. Well, there's a, if I can find it, mm-hmm. there's a movie he worked on in 1972 with Milos Forman. Okay. Uh, so I I may try to do that. Um, uh, he also has the funniest bit in The Player, and that is really saying something, because he's in the opening long shot in The Player pitching The Graduate Part Two, which uh, to it's me is good. like the funniest thing I've ever heard. Um, but uh, his filmography is is long and varied, and I certainly Well, then we're not going to make everything. you go through it here on the, on the yeah, show. Not, that would be I'm terrible. Not, and I'm not going to go through it. That would just be terrible. Yeah. No, it's fine. Um, but yeah, so we're going to do Buck Henry. There will be a watch list posted on our Letterboxd account at some point in the next few weeks uh, as we circle down on, on you know, five or ten movies that you should watch if you want to get in the spirit. But I'm going to watch Heaven Can Wait. i got to tell you, watched Ishtar a couple weeks ago. This is not related to Buck Henry. But okay. just in terms of movies that have been built up for me, yeah, that one was built up for me. And? It's awful. No, it's, <laughs> it's not. fucking terrible. Oh, it's so funny. It's not at all. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, my God. It is. Those songs I, are out of this world. They, they are, are hilarious. They are hilariously bad. There are far too many of them. I feel like the point gets made. But anyway. Nope. This is what I'm talking about with the, the built up. Don't build it up. I, I, was, I thought I was going to watch the repatriated classic. That I watched yeah. this uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you next month.